Hey guys, I get to introduce our speaker for the day. You know what? He's kind of a guy that likes to live on the edge. I'm going to move him <laughs> all the way right here. <laughs> oh, maybe not. Okay. So uh, <laughs> you're like, see, you're like, you didn't know who it was going to be introducing <laughs> you today, did you? You're like, oh boy, this is going to be really weird. So this is James Petitfee. <laughs> So, and it actually, uh, it's a French name, but that's actually not the way you're supposed to pronounce it in America. How do you say it? Well, well my family's always pronounced it pedophiles, but the students, I know, it's, it, it's memorable. Uh, the students at Biola call me Dr. P, which I suggested they do because it's mispronounced in some horrible ways, you might imagine, at airports and doctor's offices and things like that. So it's just... Let's just call it Dr. P. Let's keep it there. All right, we'll keep it there today. <laughs> you so, call me James, though. Very memorable. Yes, we'll call you James, if that's all right. So uh, he's a professor at Biola, as you heard, in New Testament. And also, he's married, and he's got a, a beautiful, beautiful wife. And her name's Braylon, and then he has three kids. And he has trouble remembering his kids' names. So, James, how is it you remember your kids' names? He doesn't know so, I'm asking them. So this. I figured, just I'm just going to get tattoos so I don't forget. And it's the same thing I do with all my Greek paradigms and everything else. Just get a tattoo, and it's not cheating. So. Oh, it's not. Okay. <laughs> so what's this one over here saying? So this is Brixton. This is my 10-year-old boy. He's a little, uh, little surf grom and, a, and a, just a rad kid. Nice, nice. And over here on this arm, you have another one. So this is Zion. He's my youngest. How old is and, Zion? And uh, he's five years old. Five, okay. And then um, I have my, my baby girl who's 13 years old. She's right here on my heart. I can't show you that and be appropriate. So you'll have to imagine. Michelli. Yep, Michelli. It's my wife's good. maiden name. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's Italian. Yeah. Very nice. Very nice. So I know you, <laughs> I know you went to Biola and Talbot, mm -hmm. and then uh, you got your doctor from UCLA, right? Yes, indeed. Yeah. That sounds, sort of sounds like a regression. In <laughs> yeah. So How dare you? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so anyway, I do have a couple of questions for you. Yeah, so please. your research is interesting to me. So you did research, it looks like, uh, actually on sociocultural history of the Roman Mediterranean. Man, I sound intelligent when I say that. Yeah. People are leaving already. Yeah, They're yeah. like, okay, I gotta go. I have no yeah, point what's it. going on here? And then um, I'll, also I noticed that um, you have some study that you've done in the Roman world on ancient Christian martyr texts. So martyr texts, I did not know they texted 2,000 years ago. Wow. <laughs> I'm learning oh. already just from being with you today. Oh, Holy mackerel. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> I never thought of that. I've, I've, I've never heard that one before. Honestly, that's beautiful. That is good. <laughs> you heard it first here. I know. This is so, um, so, also, James is also a pastor. He's actually called the beach pastor of a church called The River in South Bay, right? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What does beach pastor mean? What do you do? So we have a service that meets on the sand at Torrance Beach, California. If you're ever out there, mm -hmm. come join us, 8.30 a.m. And I've been, I, I sort of started that service in 2009, and weirdly, it became our main service. Like, we have two services, but it was sort of the one that most people wanted to go to. So rain or shine, if there's a hurricane, we're there. If a a whale beaches itself, we're going to pray over it and, and still have service. So we're there. 
Oh, it's such a tough <laughs> gig, man. <laughs> it is. You know what, though? Someone has to do it. It's That's right. Yeah, industry. absolutely. <laughs> so I love it, brother. So I love what you do. I love what you guys have planted this, and it's working. That's terrific. Wow. So um, we're going to pray with James, and we're going to launch it. Otherwise, we could just keep going like this. But you're like, <laughs> get off the stage, Steve. That's what they're thinking. <laughs> All right. Let's pray, brother. Lord God. Yeah, Lord God, I pray. I pray for my brother today you, as Lord. he brings your word as the Spirit of God speaks through him today. Would you help us to hear from you today, Lord God? Would you mm -hmm. help us to learn what it is that you want us to hear, we need to hear? Yeah. Lord God, I also pray for him, pray for his family. Thank you for his ministry and for taking the time to come here. Mm. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks yeah. so much, Steve. Do you I need my phone? Or? You know, I'll borrow it just oh, to okay. send some martyr texts. I'm going to have to use that one. It is, it is so good to be with you all this morning. Uh, I, I told this to your team, but first of all, I'm just so impressed. This is a beautiful campus, and the whole operation is just incredible. Like the detail and the care and the talent that y'all are deploying is amazing. And your reputation, I've never been here, and I've actually not, um, you know, I don't know anyone that goes here uh, in my circles, but your reputation is a really good reputation. And uh, so I, I just want you to know that. In circles at Biola and elsewhere, um, you have a great reputation and a, and a great team of people. So it's an honor to be with you this morning. It's a beautiful morning. I brought a bunch of props and things. So if nothing else, you're going to have some props today. That'll be nice. And, um, and as I'll show you later on, my wife baked cookies. So just one plateful. So this, it's going to be a limited resource. But you could be looking forward to that. Um, I, as Steve introduced, I'm a professor full-time. That's kind of my thing. And so I, I, throughout my own education and throughout my teaching, I, one of my items of pedagogy, of teaching, is to help folks articulate their ideas and their research in what we call academic prose. I mean, this is the most boring writing possible, but the goal is clarity. Like, academic papers, and uh, any high schoolers in here? Any high schoolers? All right, cool. So this will be helpful. This is kind of like a free tip for you. Uh, here's how you write an academic paper. Tell me what you're going to tell me. That's a nice thesis statement with the forecast, right? Bringing back memories for anybody? All right. Tell it to me. So that's body paragraphs. And then tell me what you told me. Concluding paragraph. Or now just type to chat GPT and say, write my essay for me. But this is how we used to do it. We would, we would seek clarity. And so we're in this series, y'all are in this series, you just started on 1 John. John is not writing academic prose. You, you will immediately say to yourself, okay, I'm following his argument, I'm following the lot, where he's heading, and all of a sudden he takes a turn. You go, okay, where are we going here? And then he zags again. When I was first a youth pastor, I was a youth pastor for eight years before I, I went into graduate school. And I, I was this young gun who just learned Greek. I had finished my first three years of Greek, and I was so excited. And one of the first series I wanted to teach on was First John, because it was the easiest Greek possible. I mean, First John is really easy Greek. If you're going to read Greek, go to John. You feel like a champ. Stay away from Luke, stay away from Acts, stay way away from Hebrews. But John, you feel great about yourself. And so I, I learned how to, you know, translate Greek. And then we did these things called syntactic diagrams. This is the, like, the most exciting sermon you've ever heard right now, I'm sure. You're just thrilled. 
and you try to diagram an argument. And I remember I translated all the Greek. I felt so good. And then I go, I'm now I'm going to diagram the logic of this letter. And it was like the pit of despair. I'm like, I can't follow this. I don't know where he's going next. I can't seem to put my hands around the argument he's making. Some truths are best told by an artist. Is that, isn't that the case? Some truths can fit nicely in your academic essay, double space, Times New Roman font, one-inch margins. And some truths are best told by an artist. When we read through 1 John, as you're already seeing, if you've been listening to it or reading through it, John is not juggling commentaries and you know, rifling through notes. John is doing this kind of theological moral jazz improvisation. He is just flowing. This is a person that's so soaked in the presence of Jesus. As, as Doug was sharing last week, I listened to the sermon, a rad sermon. He's so soaked in the presence of Jesus and in the realities broken open by the resurrection that now he's just, it's like he's doing this spirit-led improv. And he's going to flow through several thoughts that are going to interweave and come back through. The same thing's going to be said in interesting ways, in different ways. It's a, I should be playing like jazz music or like a soundtrack the whole time I preach. It would be the proper way to do this. So, and keep in mind that the, the first hearers of this text, largely illiterate, subsistence-level folks, these are not the aristocratic elite, the well-to-do, the well-educated. These are folks that come together, gather in these smaller groups. This would be like the biggest church, the mega, mega church of Ephesus, right? This would be like, wow, we've never seen this many Christians in one place. These would be smaller groups, and they'd be hearing this read aloud, and they would be just listening to it. And so what's so great about the style of John is you're going to see the style of John, it might not diagram well, and it might not fit in a nice, neat, orderly essay, but you will catch, you will not miss the priorities of this letter. And so this morning, I'm so excited to open it up, and um, I was given um, uh, by Pastor Doug a passage. We're going to look at 1 John chapter 1. And verses 5 through 10, but I'm going to also dip into a few other chapters just slightly. I'm not going to steal any future speaker's thunder, but I just, I'm going to dip into a couple of other passages. And because John is such easy Greek, I decided I'm going to, I'm going to give you, uh, I'm going to go from the DPV. Anyone have that version? The DPV? Okay, this is the cheesiest joke since the martyr text joke. Um, the Dr. P version, okay? So I'm going to translate it myself for you here. And just follow along because I'm going to try to bring a few things out in the translation that I think are being communicated and sort of the headline is loud and clear for those first hearing this text. Okay, well, let's start off. First John 1, 5. And this is the announcement which we have heard from him and we are announcing to you, to y'all. There's a good second person plural, y'all. We need to bring that back. That God is light, and in him there is not any darkness at all, not even a little bit. 
If we say that we are consistently, as a posture of life, enjoying fellowship, community, relationship with him, all the same word, koinonia, and we are consistently walking around in the darkness, then we are lying and we're not doing the truth. It's this funny construction. We're not doing, we're not making, we're not doing true things. We're lying. Verse 7, if we are consistently, as a posture of life, walking around in the light as he is in the light, then we are enjoying fellowship. We are having fellowship or community or relationship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, is cleansing us from all sin. If we say that we are not having sin, then we're misleading ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful or trustworthy, same word, and just to forgive our sins and clean us up from all injustice. If we say that we haven't sinned, we are claiming he is a liar or we're making him out to be a liar. And his logos, his word, is not in or among us. So, this translation, I thought I'd save us a little bit of time and, and bring one important aspect. I want to make a couple observations about this passage. And then I want to kind of land the plane this morning talking about an unmistakable headline, not just in this passage, but in all of John and try to bring it home for us. But the first observation I want to make, and as my translation kind of makes explicit, is here uh, and uh, Doug told me I could talk about Greek. He's like, they like actual Greek conversation stuff. So I'm like, good, I love it, my people. Um, here the Greek clusters together a bunch of present tense verbs. And in English, present tense normally de describes time, right? If you say something's present tense, it's, it's happening now. In Greek, as opposed to English, the main import, the main thing you're trying to communicate using present tense is continuous action. You're trying to say, this is a thing that is going on and on and on. The air conditioner is running. Right? It's going. It's, it's continually going. And the emphasis on continuous action is so important here because if we read this text and we're not bringing that home, it can feel like we're playing like the Christian life, the Jesus-following life is sort of this moral game. And I brought this first prop. Prop number one. Remember Operation? Remember this game? Operation, what a game, huh? Like causing anxiety for youth throughout a nation, right? This is probably the main cause of anxiety spikes in our country. Operation, it's a great cover. I mean, the, kind of a creepy cover, actually. There's a dude in there. He's wide awake. Apparently, the anesthesia hasn't taken. And there's an open flame, and there's kids in, in the operating room. And just like a random, I don't know. It's just, think about it. Operation. But the game of Operation one of the more stressful games, and I, I, I made sure the batteries were working in this uh, for the sake of my observation here, or my illustration. But when you're playing Operation, like, oftentimes we could think that the Jesus-following life is a zero-sum game. It's a, it's a life that says, all right, Jesus saved you, wiped you clean of your sins, cool. Don't screw up anymore. Don't screw up. You already had your big ticket out. Don't do it. And it's like, okay, I'm going to live a good life. I'm going to try to love my neighbor. I'm going to make sure that 
my priorities align with the Lord, and then boom, right? You, you, you hit an edge, and the nose lights up, and like some of you a little more buzzing than others. You know what I'm saying? You know who they are. I'm kidding. This is not the picture. I'll just leave that here to stare at me for the whole sermon. This is not the picture that's being set up here. What John is talking about, he's, he's opening up this idea that if God is light, and that's the metaphor that he loves to use, if God is light, and we're talking light, really bright, shining, illuminating light, and you're saying that you live in this thing he calls koinonia, which is this, this really intimate, continual, beautiful relationship with this l- creature of light, but yet you also are walking around in darkness, he's like, you're, you're actually lying. This is not a way, like if you're continually marked by darkness, you're lying to yourself, and the truth isn't even in you. It's a really important piece to, for us to, to understand. This isn't talking about one-time screw-up. This is talking about a posture of life and a habit of life. I don't know about all of you, but I stopped sinning about 10 years ago. It was, it was just glory. I said, no more of that, right? <laughs> like, but we know the difference between walking in a posture and a heart that's like, I'm just going to do my thing and staple Bible verses to it and hope it all is, is nice and clean. And God doesn't notice. And what this is saying is like, you, you have to be really clear. If you are covered in shadow, saying you're walking with light, you're actually lying to yourself. Um, there's this great quote. I, I feel like as a good Biola representative, I have to quote C.S. Lewis at least once in a sermon. So if I want to get tenure, I have to make sure to do that. But there's this great quote he talks about about dispositions of life in, in a wonderful book, Mere Christianity. How many of y'all read Mere Christianity before I've seen that book? It's a great book, and I would encourage, especially young guns, high schoolers, junior hires, uh, if you want a book that's going to stretch you a little bit, it's, it's one of the greatest books to kind of come back to again. It should be like pack it in all of your kids, grandkids, college bags. Like put $100 in there too. They'll, they'll appreciate that. Just throw it in their bag and say, when you need it, read this. This is a great text. He has this great line about, about uh, living life, and he talks about virtue. He says, there is one further point about the virtues that ought to be noticed. There is a difference between doing some particular just or temperate action, a good virtuous action, and being a just or temperate man. Someone who is not a good tennis player may now and then make a good shot. What you mean by a good player is the man whose eye and muscles and nerves have been so trained by making innumerable good shots that they can now be relied on. They have a certain tone or quality which is there even when he's not playing. In the same way, a man who perseveres in doing just actions gets in the end a certain quality of character Now, it is that quality rather than the particular actions which we mean when we talk of virtue. I think it's it's just a really good picture of the Jesus-following life. It's a life that has so been an apprentice of Jesus, so lived in the orbit of his word and his truth and his people, that you're you're going to screw up. You know this, newsflash, you're going to screw up. But the posture of your life and the habit of your life, you can actually look at it and say, I'm walking in the footsteps of Jesus more or less by the grace of God, by the, by the um, leading of the Spirit. But it also has, and I love this about uh, this passage, it has a really honest anthropology. Like, the, the scriptures are so great because 
they capture humans very well. And if you've hung out with humans for any length of time, I've had 41 years around humans, and you, you realize this, that we do screw up. We do have problems. But something weird kind of happens uh, sometimes in church settings. And I was, my dad's actually here. Uh, uh, was, I grew up a pastor's kid. He he's a, was a pastor for how long, dad? 30-something years? How many years? 38 years. Yeah, just eight more. 30, 38 What's the difference? 38 years. And so I grew up in church. I was born on a, you know, on a Tuesday. I was in church on Sunday. I have lived in any church kids here, any church, fellow church kids. You've been around the church a long time. Okay, there's one. Two. Two of us are here. We understand. Like, you can get good at, like, kind of hiding your sin and kind of faking it. You can figure out how to sort of put the play on. And how many of y'all know what I'm talking about? Okay, some of you go like, yes, yeah, so I'm doing right now. I'm pretending to listen, but my mind is thinking about what's going on at lunch. That's okay too. We can get really good at it, but then build a little treehouse for our favorite sin. Kind of build like a little fort for it. Like in the back of our lives, we're just gonna build a little fort and let it kind of sit there. And then say, I'm so good. I'm blessed, brother. I'm blessed. Things are going so well. Hey, Anything that you want to talk about or pray about? No, nope, just, you know, had a little temper on the road this morning. That's it. We always talk about, like, our, our, our vices as driving-related when we don't want to talk about the real stuff. And what happens, okay, so here's, here's a good illustration. What happens when we start kind of hiding our sin? We just want to hide it, put it away. If it's scary, maybe, it's going to freak people out. We're going to maybe hurt somebody, or we're just embarrassed. We've kind of, we've lied about it for so long, and we're like, let's just board this up and not think about it. When I was in high school, I went to Redondo Union High School, Redondo Beach, California, and I was in surf class, zero period. So you'd wake up, you get down to the uh, Hermosa Pier, and I'd surf my brains out, and then I'd, I'd uh, change out of my wetsuit, into my school clothes, throw my wetsuit in the trunk of my car. I had this Geo Prism, 1993 Geo Prism. <laughs> and I remember Geos? Uh, and I threw the wetsuit in the trunk of the car, I'd go to class, and I'd do my school thing, whatever, Meanwhile, there's that wetsuit sitting in the back of my car just fermenting, like all afternoon under the hot sun. And then I get back in my car, and go, if the surf was good, immediately back to the beach, throw my wetsuit back on. It didn't smell great, but that's okay. I'm going to be in the water in a second. Surf, come back, throw it back in the trunk. Next morning, rinse and repeat, right? So you know those little Christmas trees you buy at the gas station? Those little Christmas tree scented things? I had a solution for the problem growing in the back of my car. I'm like, it's a Christmas tree. It smells like Christmas every day in my car. So you put the Christmas tree on. That lasts about a day or two. You buy another Christmas tree, open it up, throw it on. Before you know it, I had like a baker's dozen of these Christmas trees hanging from my rearview mirror. It was almost like a, a visual impairment. And my, my then girlfriend and now wife, Finally, she's like, James, your car smells horrific, dude. You got to do something about that. You can smell that? I thought the Christmas trees, you know, and eventually I, took, I had to get out. I had to open up that trunk. I had to pull everything out. Literally like a small ecosystem had grown up in that. I think it was like a, a, a mini rainforest. So I, I had to clean it all out and Clorox it and everything else and start up. We can get so good, right, at building the little panic room for our sin. And this morning, I don't know who I'm talking to. I guess I'm talking to probably all of us. But I want this passage to remind us a couple things. If we say we don't have sin, we're misleading ourselves, verse 8. And verse 10, we're calling God a liar. This should be a massive relief for all of us. Let's all just take a deep breath. 
Oh, that's a relief. You sin. You screw up. Some of you are like, I don't want to go to church. I don't want to get judged. Maybe it's your first time someone put you in a headlock said, you got to come to church. I'll buy you lunch if you do. And you're like, I'm afraid of this place. Everyone's so holy. Everyone's so good. Newsflash, they're not. They do screw up. I screw up. The beauty is our God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's so honest. It's like God looks right in our face and goes, I know you're a screw up. I know you have screwed up. Hand that over to me. And this is what's so cool, and I, and I hope this morning one of the observations um, that we can, we can take away, or at least I've been, I've been thinking a lot about, is the importance, beauty, and power of confession and forgiveness. If all I did this morning is say, I want the power and importance and beauty of confession and forgiveness to just circulate in your hearts and minds. If you left this beautiful campus, by the way, like incredible campus, if you left it this morning and you walked out of here and you felt like afresh, like that first time, remember that first time when you surrendered to Jesus? For many of you that are Jesus followers, you felt like you could run a marathon. You felt like you would laugh at every joke, that every, you, you'd see the sunrise more beautifully, you heard the birds chirping. Life was real and there because the burdens of your sin, you were just, it was gone, you knew it. The beautiful thing about the life of Jesus is you're not playing operation, where if you buzz the edge, God's like, that's it, you're unadopted, get out of my house, you sicko. But you can go, God, I screwed up. You can go to one another. James 5, 16 is a great passage about confessing our sins to one another. I'm not talking about broadcasting it to an unsafe place. Some of you have some stuff that you, you know you need to talk about, and you're scared to talk about it. Let's not do it during announcements at church, maybe. But getting a handful of people that you can trust, that love Jesus, understand what it's like to be forgiven, and to say, here's what I'm going through. Here's what I'm wrestling with. And then to receive back truth from the word. I'm telling you, it's a beautiful thing. It is a truly beautiful thing. If I could, if I could give you right now, and I don't have this, and if I offered this to you, you're, I'm probably a cult leader. Don't take it. But if I had a pill I can give you, let's call it a pill you would take and you would know, you would, you would actually have a full cognitive and like existential full body understanding of how forgiven you are. If I could give each of you that pill right now, and it would last for 12 hours, 12 hours, where you would have an un mitigated, unending, total clear sense of the fact that you're so forgiven for everything that you've done. What do you think your day would be full of? Like, honestly, think about that for a second. What would you be doing? You got 12 hours. Anyone want to share? I'm a professor, so I like interaction. Joy? Joy, what else? What would you be doing with your 12 hours of like, you are, you just know how forgiven you are. You're not just saying it, you know it. Praise. Telling people, you will not believe the God I serve. He's forgiven me for so much. I am so free. Well, that's good. Maybe not that loud, but, and I spit when I talk, which is good. There's like a, a buffer zone here. What else? Relief. What else? Peace. Liberty. Beautiful. Yeah, you know what you, know what you don't hear a lot of when you ask that question? Well, I'm forgiven. 
Let's get some good sin going. This is awesome. I got a clean slate. What could I get into now? It's the, actually the opposite. It works in the opposite. It's kind of strange, right? You would think that having a lavish theology of the forgiveness of sins offered because of Jesus on the cross, you would think that that's going to, well, people are going to take advantage of that one. That's a loophole. They're just going to double down on their sin knowing it's been forgiven. It's actually the opposite. When we are hiding and duct taping over and spraying Lysol over that little compartment of sin that we just don't want anyone knowing about, we are probably prone to living more in that secret life than we are to that freedom out in the light as he is in the light. Okay. I could preach that a little bit longer, but I have one more thing I want to talk about. This, this beautiful passage. That God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And if we are consistently, if we say we're consistently having fellowship with him, but we're consistently walking around in the darkness, then we're lying and we are not doing the truth. We're not living according to the truth. But if we're consistently, as a posture of life, walking in the light as he is in the light, then we are having fellowship, community, relationship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, is cleansing us from all sins. What does walking around in the light look like? This is a great question, an important question, because if you stop there and we go, let's just do our passage, and I'll preach that, it's actually really convenient as a preacher to fill in light and darkness with my favorite sort of moral hobby horses, like what do I want to say is walking in the light and what's walking in the darkness? If we want to fill those in ourselves, we could fill them in with all kinds of good culture war things or greed or sexual ethics or submission to church authorities or politics or whatever and say, if you're walking in the light as he is in the light, you better vote Democratic or you better vote Republican. If you're walking in the darkness, it's because, you know, and we could pick our favorite topics and act like that's what he's talking about. That, that's why I, I teach biblical interpretation uh, to fre freshmen or first years at Biola. I get the chance to have these classrooms full of students, and it's their first time for many of them formally studying the scriptures beyond just Sundays, beyond just their own studies, but actually in a classroom setting, in an academic setting, opening them up and saying, how did our ancient ancestors in the faith interpret these? How can I best, in a healthy way, just draw out the meaning rather than inject meaning into the text? I could draw out the meaning one way I think of it is let the scriptures, let these scriptures speak to you and let these scriptures rearrange the furniture in your life. Don't try to rearrange the furniture in the scriptures. I don't like that edge. Let's move that a little bit over here. Ah, that fits better. But rather let the scriptures rearrange the furniture in your own heart and life. One of the tips that I give them, and I'll give it to you. It's a freebie. You don't have to pay any tuition at all. It's a biblical interpretive tip, and I think it's the most important one. And I'm not kidding about this. Read in big chunks. Read in big chunks. Big, fat, delicious, wonderful chunks of scripture. Or listen to it even. Listening to it in big chunks. The point I'm making is, rather than stopping in a little passage and going, there we go, I got it. Read the whole thing through. And what you find out in John is he is more than happy to fill in the blanks of what is walking in the light and what is walking in the darkness. And you're going to be on a journey, a safari, an academic adventure, a spiritual adventure in this, this church 
over the next several weeks exploring exactly what it looks like, what John is thinking about when he says walk in the light as he is in the light. But I'm just going to, I'm not going to even read them all to you. I'm just going to point out a few things. He gets really clear. He gets really clear. Uh, in 1 John 2, 9 through 11, he's like, walking in the darkness. Do you want to know what walking in the darkness looks like? It looks like hating your siblings in Christ. It looks like saying that sibling in Christ, he uses the Greek term adelphoi, it uh, just means uh, some translated brothers, it can mean brothers and sisters, it can mean, I like siblings, that's a good terminology. If you're saying, I am walking in a light, but I, I hate that person, and we would never call it hate, right? We're Christians, we're never gonna say I hate them, but we are actually living a life that shows I hate that person. He goes, then you're in the darkness, actually. If you're, if you're loving your siblings in Christ, you're walking in the light. 1 John 2, 9 through 11. 1 John 3, 10. He uses another kind of binary. He's talking about children of the slanderer, of the devil. It's kind of heavy language. John is not afraid to use some pretty gnarly language. Gnarly is an academic term, by the way. He says, the one who is not doing righteousness or justice and the one who is not loving one sibling in Christ, you're actually proving that your family line is not from God. It's actually from the slanderer, the one who loves to tear down, the one who loves to point a finger and say, look at that weak spot, look at that ugliness. Let's delight in bringing people down. And so he's making it really clearly. Um, there's, there's more, but this beautiful pa passage, I'm just gonna read one more full passage to you, or full, full sentence. 1 John 3, 23, and you'll get to all of these, but I had to fill in the blanks for you. This passage really captures the two ingredients about which John is protective and insistent. So if you wanted to turn there with me, uh, you totally can. And if you don't have a Bible, you can listen to it. That's how your ancient ancestors in the faith received it. So you're in good company there. You're not cheating by listening. And it says this, this is his commandment. This is what he commands. This is walking in the light. That we might believe or entrust ourselves in the name of his son, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the King, Jesus Christ, and that we might love one another. That's, that's really the, the two priorities that John will not give an inch on. And you can't shut him up about it. Like those people that are, that, they're passionate about something and they won't stop talking about it. If you start talking to me about ancient Mediterranean culture or about our second century Christian martyr stories, I'm just going to talk. It's not going to end and you're going to wish you didn't ask probably because I'm so passionate about it and I'm thinking about it and I'm writing about it and it's always kind of running through my mind and heart. For John, these were the songs stuck in his head just again and again. Trust in the real Jesus. Not some fake Jesus you've made up. Not some Jesus that's just a puppet that says what you want to be said. But the real Jesus. Trust in him. And John, as um, Doug shared last week, John knew that Jesus. John touched and smelled and saw that Jesus. And he's like, believe me, this is the one. Don't go for anything but the real authentic Jesus. And love your siblings in Christ. Love one another. Those are the two unmistakable headlines that come through 
Um, and I want to kind of close off now. I've been praying, whenever I get an opportunity to come to speak to a community that's not like my home church, or it's not a place I speak normally, um, I find it an incredible privilege. It really is one of the coolest adventures of being a teacher or a preacher, is getting to go somewhere that no one knows me, and I don't know you, and, and we're here for a moment sharing one thing. That is our adoration of Christ. Or some of you here are just curious about him and, and you're, you're hanging out and learning. That's great. We share that. But I've been praying like, God, what, what would you have me um, say? What do, you, what do you want emphasized? And um, Doug shared a little bit about your church and, and your journey and it's so exciting. You really are at a place where you're looking ahead, thinking the next season of, of life at Trinity Church it's going to be um, something beautiful, something new, something, um, something where Lord, the Lord is taking you further. And I really have this sense, reading these words and in prayer, that as you dream together about the future of Trinity Church, and I'm an outsider, so take it for what it's worth, let John's obsession be your obsession. Let John's obsession be your obsession. It can be so easy. Again, I've been a pastor for like 20-something years. I've been in the church my whole life. I work at a university where I hang out with a lot of church leaders. And I, see a, I get to speak at cool places like this. And you see a lot of things. And I know in my heart, one of the temptations when you're thinking about the future of a church is like, what's trending right now? How do we make this thing popping? How do we make it shiny and and tantalizing and how do we capture this culture or how do we fight the culture you're looking around what are other churches doing are we doing it right and it can be so tempting to try to find out what's the newfangled exciting thing that's going on and i'm not saying there's anything wrong some of you are artists some of you are on the cutting edge of technology some of you that's what god put in you so use it for his glory awesome but my, my encouragement is rather than these shiny techniques and looking around to what's trending, is to look back to this simple, profound priority of love. Like, what if Trinity Church, what if they said, and, and, and I think, I kind of think this is your vibe already, if I could use that word. I kind of think from all the interactions I've had already. Like, I'm, I meet Steve and Jeff, and the first thing I want to do is hug me. Like, just bring it in. I'm like, I love it. Like, there is a love fest going on here. There is a love priority. I could see it, but, but what if that became your obsession? Like, we want to be the most loving church. That's what we want to be. Well, how are you going to get the next generation? How are you going to connect on TikTok? T-I-K-T-O-K. Like, how are you going to do it? Using the YouTube, the World Wide Web? Like, how are you going to reach this next generation for Jesus? Well, what if we got really good at love? Like, what if that was like the main thing we were known for? This great line, Paul Atarsis writing to the churches in Roman Corinth, chapter 13. I'm just going to read it to you. You can turn there if you want, but I'm going to read it to you. <laughs> Another set of conditional sentences, just like 1 John 1, 5 through 10. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love, agape, agape love then I am a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. Now that's pretty amazing. Your worship band is awesome. Like, you are blessed. You have a very powerful 
and melodious, is that even a word, melodious worship band. It's really something else. What if it just kept getting better to the point where you literally had the absolute best band in the entire region? You were known for the most incredible worship. And the speakers you brought in every week, they didn't spit when they talked. They didn't have too many props. They, they were just the greatest communicators ever. But, but, you didn't really have love. Paul Tarsus would say, well, you, you know what you sound like? You sound like, like a gong. 70s gong show, anyone remember that? <laughs> My dad had me, I've seen some of those things. If I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, what if Trinity Church had the kind of faith that when you held hands, you watched the mountains shake? Things happen. Lives are healed. Like, what if that was what you were known for? You have cancer? Go to Trinity Church. Let them pray for you. They believe what they're praying. How many of you would be stoked on that? I would love that. That's amazing. What does Paul say? But, but if you don't have love, you're nothing. He doesn't even say, you're okay, you get a C plus. He's like, no, you failed. If I give all I possess to the poor, what a generous church. Like a massively generous church. I could tell this is a generous church. Like your priorities are to give and support folks in Turkey, Folks across the world, kids going to camp. I don't know how many other things you're involved in. What if you were the most generous church, though? What if everyone in here did the 90-10 principle? They lived off 10% and they gave 90%. This is the most generous church I've ever heard of. But you don't have love. You got nothing. If you give your body over to hardship that you may boast but you don't have love, you gain nothing. And then he defines love the same way John defines love. It looks like Jesus. Uh, here comes the cookies. Okay, this is, this is how I want to close, and I, I, I want to uh, illustrate to you. When, when I'm thinking about church life and the future of Trinity Church and the future of any churches I'm a part of, there's something weird that happens in our hearts is I want to find good, measurable markers to show whether we're doing good as a church and one that i'm always tempted by and look at i'm just gonna be honest is numbers like how are we how many people are here specifically and i'm not i'm not saying that's not a good a gauge that needs to be that's a you got to make make some decisions that way i get it but in my heart personally james i can get kind of obsessive like was there a lot of kids this week or little kids ah we're doing great god's doing great things it's getting so big and we could seek after the growth, the objective, or, or giving. Our tithing was awesome this month. We're crushing it financially. This is a good, healthy church. Um, I could, I went to Vaughn's before I came here with my dad, and I bought a bunch of cookies, okay? Now, now I could have bought more. These are cheap. These are the bottom of the shelf ones um, that I think they're made, let's see, key ingredients, asbestos, aspartame, lead-based paint. Okay, so this is what we have here. And I'm sorry if you're in the cookie business. I can get you a lot of these, like a bunch of them, and I can get them for cheap, and I can multiply them and fill them up and be like, look how many cookies I got for you. I got so many cookies. 
And then my beautiful wife, who's, she's with the kiddos today, she makes an amazing chocolate chip. I need, a, I need this is going to be a sacrifice, but I need, a, I need someone to help me taste this. Would someone volunteer? How about, how about, like, come on, yeah, come on up here, please. Come on, hand, come on, hand. All right, come on over here, come on over. What is your name, good sir? AJ, AJ, will you do me a favor? Come on up here, get all the way up, all the way up the stairs. AJ, everyone give a hand for AJ. AJ. AJ, what grade are you in? Seventh grade? My daughter's in seventh grade. All right, well, maybe when you're a little older, I'll set you guys up. We'll see what happens. So... AJ, here's a cookie. I want you to just take a nice bite of it and just describe your experience. Is that a good cookie? AJ nodded his head, yes. Thank you, AJ. Now stay there. You can hold that one for a minute. I should have blindfolded you, but I instead. Okay. You're not allergic to, um, to cardboard, are you? Okay. All right, AJ. Go ahead and have a bite of that one. All right, now which one do you like better? Yeah, I'll give AJ a hand. AJ, take those with you. You're good. <laughs> and my, my point is so simple, and that is like my wife, the reason these are so good is because she's super persnickety about ingredients. She's really specific about how to make them, what to put in them, what not to put in them, the temperature of the oven, all that stuff. She's really, really detailed. It is so easy to become a church, and I've done it, and I've been a person that's so about, like, let me, just give me more, 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 more. Bigger is better, bigger is better. But I'm telling you, if, like, we became obsessed with the things that John's obsessed with here, you watch what happens in the next decade of Trinity Church, ladies and gentlemen. It's going to be, I'm going to close with a story. Yeah, no, give that, that that's true. Woo! There's this great story. So um, there's a tradition, one of the ancient traditions of John. It's not, a, not from the scriptures. It's from later in his life. He lived maybe into his 80s, very old. And um, there's a story that towards the end of his life, he was so old uh, that his disciples sort of had to carry him into the church meetings. They would carry him in and kind of set him up, prop him up. Imagine if you had someone who walked and talked with Jesus of Nazareth, someone who touched and saw and smelled and heard the resurrected Jesus' voice. And he was going to be the speaker this week. Not some weirdo with tattoos and too much facial hair. Like John. And he got brought in here and he set up and you're holding your breath going, I want to hear every word he says. And it says, he would say this, little children, Love each other. Little children, love each other. Little children, love each other. And, and the tradition goes on that some of the younger folks were like, the, the, come, okay, John, we get it, we get it, but you walked and talked with Jesus. Give us something more. Like, tell us, some, okay, what's the next point? Move on, please. Let's do a new sermon series. Love each other. Love each other. And he said, teacher, why do you always say this? He replies, because it is the Lord's commandment, and if it alone is kept, it is sufficient. John, who walked and talked with Jesus, 
something was so important that he knew if we can get this, we're there. So I would just say Trinity Church and then James and Dad, love each other. Love each other. I'm going to pray. I'm going to move all these props off stage and we're going to worship. We're going to worship the God of love this morning. Lord, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for your forgiveness that is so real. And thank you, God, that you don't call us to do backflips and fire off fireworks and try to be this really cool, trending people. You call us to a simple life of faith and a simple life of love. And God, I pray that I could be more about that. When the world screams at me to do more and perform more and fight harder, that I would lean further into love. Thank you, Jesus, that you showed us what that looks like. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you.